0: If anything comes out of these last two or three years, it is, my, how things can change quickly. They can. And one of the things that that happens is um, we realize, and people have said it all the time, is, boy, this is not going to be the same world that my kids or my grandkids were raised. My mom got an invitation not all that long ago. Uh, We're probably going to go in a couple of weeks. It's a reunion. I've never seen one of these. It's a reunion to a street. It's the street that she kind of grew up on and that we grew up on. But she didn't really want to go. And I said, mom, you got to go. Your dad built half of the houses on this street. It's like, I mean, we've got to go to this thing. I mean, you're like the only living historian to this place besides you know all the cool attics and everything that you know and you know all of the secret places of all these homes and it's like man you know all the crazy stories and where things are buried like people not really but there's you know so in in as i was thinking about going back this is a place you know we we haven't been there in 30 40 years and 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 I was realizing, it's like, when we go back, my, how things are going to be different. And how their kids in this street are going to be raised in such a different way than I was. And I'm sure that there are going to be some folks who are going to say, oh, it's not going to be the same. And you're right, it's not going to be the same. It's going to be different. And that's going to feel at times unstable and disquieting and kind of nerve-wracking. And because of that, we're going to feel nervous and, and we're going to say things like, man, this world is not going to be the same kind of world for my grandkids. And that's a true statement. But the reality is that statement has been made long before our generation ever came along. You see, John was saying the same thing. At least John's constituency was. How do I know that? It's because when John was writing to this group of people, and he's writing to the church in Ephesus, that's where John was the pastor. It's today the area of Turkey. And he was writing to this church. It was probably one of the most influential churches in the entire region. It was one of those churches where everyone wanted, what's Ephesus doing? Uh, how are they handling this? What is Ephesus, how are they teaching this? Or how are they responding to this Gnostic issue? Or whatever the common issue of the day was. And how are they? how is it John handling this issue? Because they were that kind of church. They were the most influential church around. And one of the things that John noticed was that in this region or in this season, this context of instability, was he knew that they needed some things of which they could anchor their life about. Everybody does. In all of the instability of our day and all of the craziness of our day, there's some things that your grandkids, frankly, there's some things that you need to be able to say. You know what? At the end of the day, there's some things I know. There's some things that I can anchor my life on. How do I know that? Because there's a word that John uses over 40 times in this book alone. It's the term gnosko. It's the term to know. Things that I know i 'll just give you a few examples of it, Chapter two, verse three. We know that we have come to know Two five we know that we are in him. Three two we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Three fourteen we know that we have passed from death to life. 319. We know that we belong to the truth. We know that God lives in us. We know that we live in Him and He in us. We know that God hears us and we know that we are children of God. Why would He write that? Because when you get in unstable waters, when you get in times that are tumultuous and ever-changing like we've experienced in the last two, three, four years, maybe the last 20 years. The thing that gives you the ability to endure those and not lose your mind and not panic and not fill yourself with anxiety and not have to medicate yourself because you're so filled with worry is exactly what John gives us. There are things that you can sink your teeth into. Things that you know. And he finishes this book with three of them. Three of them. Number one is when I get to heaven, you can know absolutely with a certainty that you'll have eternal life that you'll be saved. You can know when you live on this earth that God hears you and he hears your prayers and you can know with certainty that your life can change. Those are three things that you don't have to doubt. You can have all the confidence in the world in and you can know them and that knowledge can change the way you live. Number one, God wants you to know that your life is secure forever. I grew up in a church where that security wasn't offered. In fact, it was suspended. We never offered that. We never told you that you could be certain. It was never promised. In fact, it was held out there as a carrot. In fact, we, in our church, we grew up and and you never knew for certain that you could be saved. And you were always kind of yearning for it, reaching for it, lurching for it. Always being told that there are certain sins or a number of sins that could vote you off the island. Well, because of that. You always kind of had this mental record in your mind, wondering, uh, "Is what I did Friday night? Is, is that am I off?" And I remember when I was teaching at Denver Seminary, I, I had two nuns um, take the class with me, and they were wonderful people. But I'll never forget what one of the sisters said. She said, "Doctor Hanky, I, you can never ever." Promise me or guarantee that I will know that I'm saved. Thus, I must always continue in the sacramental life. Now, I I wasn't raised Catholic. I didn't continue in the sacramental life, but I guarantee you I did continue in the behavior modification life. I continued in the life of good works, the continued life of good service. I worked my tail off for God, trying to make sure that I altered or I made up for all of the things I might have done on Friday night or Saturday night or Monday night if I was having a bad week. And I always kept this mental record, always fearful that if I died, horribly in the middle of one of those nights that I would stand before God. And the other great fear is I was afraid that I miscalculated what God thought of one of these nights. Maybe he weighed them differently than I did. I had no assurance that I was going to go to heaven. In fact, I had a pretty high probability that I might not have done enough. And so I was driven. My first ulcer was at 16. And I can almost guarantee you it was driven out of a fear of hell that I worked and worked trying to overcome. John's writing to this group of people and he says to them. And this is the testimony of God that he has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Verse 12. And he he who has the son has life. And he who does not have the son of God doesn't have life. He says it in a different way. But it's the same thing. I write these things to you who believe. Not who work. Not who behave, not who tithe, not who give. I write these things who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. How do you know? How do you absolutely know? Because John wants you to. John wants you to absolutely know. Number one, he says, is because you have life in Christ, because you believe. He says you have life. What are they? Number one is because your position has changed. The scripture tells us, John 5, 24, you've moved from death to life. That's not you're moving from death to life. That's not you're becoming a living person. It's you've moved from death to life. That's You've moved from somebody who was dead to now somebody who is alive. Romans says you've moved from an enemy of God to a friend of God. You've moved from somebody who was once alienated from God who is now a friend of God. Romans 8 tells us you have moved from a person who was an orphan who is now an adopted son or a daughter of God. Those are not positions that you gradually move into, nor are they positions that you can slide back out of. When I was a kid, I was... In my mind, I never really saw myself as a son of God. I saw myself as a tool of God, of which I could be used by God, of which I wanted to be sharpened so that I could be effective, so that I wouldn't be discarded by God. Absolutely. And if I was a sharp tool and I could be used by God, then I would be effective for God. But I was never a son because a son couldn't be removed. I mean, a son was a son and a son is always a son. But that wasn't my picture. Because I was a tool. I was an effective tool. I wanted to make a difference for the kingdom of God. And I really wanted to make a difference for the kingdom of God. Because I needed to make sure that I outweighed those moments where I had bad days. I never saw myself as a person who was moved from death to life. I saw my person as a tool, an ambassador. I always saw the assignments that God gave me. I never saw the positional identity that God gave me. Not only was my position changed, but my possession was changed. Meaning... That I was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You see, when you got saved, something happened inside of you. And the scripture says that the Holy Spirit took up residence in you. You became a new being. And literally, the Holy Spirit comes inside of you and seals you and takes up residence in you and renews you and cleanses you and gives you a new spirit and gives you and makes you a new creation. When the Holy Spirit comes in you, Peter says that he gives you an imperishable seed. And I don't know how you would define imperishable, but imperishable to me means cannot perish. It can't die. My entire Christian life... Up to the point where I began to see the scriptures differently. Was something that I was living in a suspended salvation. I was hoping to continue it. Never anything had permanence until I began to read the scripture. And and the scripture says that the father has given me. And nothing can snatch me out of the father's hand. Nothing can take me out of the son's hand. That seemed to have a permanence that I was never raised with. I was given an imperishable seed that seems to have a permanence that I wasn't raised with. That's a possession that changed me. A purpose. My purpose was changed for my treasure was no longer in this world. It was with God. When I graduated from high school and went into college, I, I chose my Uh, major for one reason I went in and they said what major did you want and I chose business with a minor in accounting for one reason both had to do with money it was it And if you would have told me, no one advised me, if you would have told me engineers make more money, I would have chosen engineering. If somebody would have told me that, you know, rocket scientists made more money, I would have chosen rocket scientists. Um, When I got saved, I moved over and became an educator, and and then they told me, you're not going to make any money, and you were going to be poor the rest of your life, and it didn't matter at that point. Poverty was fine. But when I wasn't a believer, making money was my sole goal in life. Because I grew up in poverty. And I'd had enough of it by the time I was 18. But when I got saved, all of a sudden something changed. And it was like, I, I wasn't about being with, you know, money. I, I was about being with people. And, and that change, uh, changed me because I had a life in Christ. And that change overhauled my entire life and john says you know you are secure because your position your possession and your purpose has been changed not only that but your security in jesus has changed verse six he says this is the one who came by water and the blood jesus christ He did not come by water only, but by water and the blood, and it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. Now, church history has argued over this text for a long time, and you have the sacramental view, and you have a lot of different views, and for the shortness of our time to get today i want to give you uh, just a, a one option there's the sacramental view that looks at baptism and a variety of things and i want to suggest a uh, long long time ago tertullian gives us this option that what john is again he's looking at and, and it is this issue why is your your salvation in christ secure Why can he make this statement in verse 13? I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you can know that you have eternal life. Why is it? Let me phrase it this way. If you've ever struggled with this, people will come to me. Mark, why do you believe? Why do you believe this story? There's all kinds of creation stories and there are. Scores of creation stories other than the one in the Bible. Why do you believe this story of salvation of Jesus Christ? There's all kinds of others. There's Buddhist stories. There's Hindu stories. There's stories of Muslim. There's stories of, you know, salvation through, you know, uh, Hindu and through uh, Mormons. All kinds of things. Why this one? Why do you have confidence in this? From this text, let me answer that question. Water, blood, and the testimony of the Holy Spirit. What does John give us these? What is the water? I think John is telling us that the water is the baptism of Christ. What happened to the baptism of Christ is the father spoke to the son. And he said to the son and those hearing, this is my beloved son in whom I love and am well pleased. What did he say at that place? He authenticated the son in terms of those who heard him. This is my son. This is my anointed son. Later, he again said, this is my son. Listen to him. It was the place where the father authenticated the son. Blood. What was the blood? It was the place where Christ died And went up into heaven and presented his body, his blood before God in the throne room of heaven. And the father accepted the offer of Christ for your forgiveness, for my forgiveness. How do we know that the father received it? Remember Easter? Because Christ walked out of the grave. How do we know that the Father received that forgiveness? How do we know that we're forgiven? Because Jesus Christ walked out of the grave. Testimony of the Spirit. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are sons of God. That we are forgiven. That we have received the forgiveness of Christ. Why do I believe that when I die... I am going to stand before Christ and I'm going to receive the forgiveness of Christ and entrance into heaven because of these three. John says, you can know for certain with absolute certainty that you're going to have eternal life because the father affirmed the son, because the father welcomed the son's sacrifice affirming your forgiveness. And because the spirit of God applies it and if you will, quickens it to your spirit and applies it to your spirit. I would say to anyone in all of the world, if you can offer me something other than those three, I will listen. Until then, I stand on those three. Those three are why I believe in the security of the believer. I can stand on no no other and I will believe no other because 500 people witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. People heard the voice of the father. People heard the voice of the father. People witnessed the resurrection of Christ and the testimony of the spirit. And that's the reason why I absolutely believe and can reject all other religious stories. Because John says, this is why I tell you, you can have confidence in your salvation amen amen Amen. Amen. number two you can have confidence to know that god is listening and hearing you now i would say most christians believe god hears you but here's the problem the problem is you have some unanswered prayers the problem is some of your kids got divorced the problem is some of you did the problem is some of you have cancer The problem is fill in the blank. What do we do with those? What do we do with those? Because the text tells us this is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. What do we make of this text? God wants us to know that he's listening. Let me begin with three principles that come from this text. And I quote Robert Law for one of them. Prayer is a mighty instrument, not forgetting man's will done in heaven, but forgetting God's will done on earth. I must first humbly admit that prayer is not about getting my will done prayer is about getting God's will done thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven if prayer is going to make any sense to me at all I must admit and surrender to and yield to and agree to The prayer is about not getting Mark's will done. It's about getting God's will done. And it's not because God's an ogre. It's because he's all wise and Mark is not. It's because God is good and I'm limited. It's because God is kind. And on most days, I'm far from the glory of Christ. Prayer is a mighty instrument, but it's not forgetting my will to be done. It's forgetting God's will to be done on earth. But prayer is not also an overcoming of God's reluctance. It is laying hold of God's willingness, says George Mueller. When you look at John's point, he says, This is the confidence we have in approaching God. When you look at that, I don't think you can say that God is up there in heaven reluctant to hear us. I don't think John is saying that God is up there with a stingy spirit. I don't think we can suggest that God is up there going, I am going to sparsely measure out my resources to you. No, he says, this is the confidence that you can have. He's lavish. He wants to pour out his grace upon you. He wants to pour out his will to you. It's laying hold of God's willingness as I submit to his will, as I yield to his heart, as I align myself to his will. But uh, here's the challenge God not only ordains the end, but he also ordains the means to the end. Let me give you an illustration. About two to three months ago, I began to pray for something. It is yet to be answered. I don't know why God is taking his time. He's long past due from my perspective. Um, I feel quite vulnerable that God has not answered my prayer. I feel slightly exposed It's not an issue of character, integrity, none of that. I, I just want him to answer it. I want him to wrap it up. I, I, I want this this answer to be done. I, I and and so I realize as I'm praying this prayer, I, I'm like, Lord, please get it done. And and I. I admit i don't know your will i don't know certain selections i don't know the people involved and so lord i'd like you to move this thing along and i'm uh, people are asking for certain things and i don't have answers and lord i'm feeling kind of vulnerable and i'm feeling like i'm not a good leader because i can't give answers but i can't give answers because you're not Answering for me and it's you who need to come through for me and I'm looking like I don't know what I'm doing and the reality is I don't know what I'm doing because you haven't answered so there <laughs> take care of it and I realize that God loves to develop patience and I don't and God loves to develop faith. I want it imputed to me. I don't want to develop it. I want it handed to me. I want faith to just be imparted. God wants it to be massaged and developed. And sometimes I've had people and I have felt this way. If God knows the end and he's going to determine the end, then what good does it do for me? Uh, Why does he need me to pray? Maybe it's because God has ordained not only the end, but the means. And my friend, what if you're the means? And what if you as the means to the end... What if he wants to develop you? And what if there's issues in your own heart of patience and faith and maturity and strength and endurance? And what if God wants you to wiggle? And what if God wants you to stay awake at night? And what if God wants you to lose a few nights sleep so that you can pray? Does God hear you? Absolutely. And does God want you to learn to yield your soul and your heart to his will? Yes. Be assured. God hears you. Don't ever doubt that, John says. But that doesn't change the fact that God ordains not only the ends, but the means. And more likely than not, you are the means. But that doesn't take you out of the process. It puts you smack in the middle. And it means in the process, God is going to do some of the most beautiful work of changing you. And finally, God wants you to know that you can change. He brings up this situation. It's kind of a weird one. If anyone sees a brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and... God will give him life. Well, that's good. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. That's helpful. There is a sin that leads to death. Uh-oh, that's bad. What's that? I think what John is bringing up is this situation. Somebody brings up, a, you know, hey, John, um, we've been told that there is a sin that leads to death. What should we do about that? And and he goes, well, there is um, Ananias and Sapphira, two realtors, um, probably shouldn't be a realtor. um, Just kidding. Um, Two realtors, they sold some property. uh, They kind of lied and brought some stuff and God judged them. Um, He he wanted to give the church an, an example. Don't be lying to God. Um, not good. And then the other situation was communion. Um, I told you this after communion, not before, because they didn't want you to be fearful. Um, They were taking communion one day. First Corinthians 11 is where this is found. And they took it in a very inappropriate way. And there were some people that were dying because of that. Is there a sin that leads to a judgment where God says, okay, I've had enough. Um, I'm taking you. Yeah. I think there are, at times, there are people that sin in a way that God says, okay, you've hurt the body of Christ enough. I'm taking you out. Does that happen? Yes. I think it's rare. Um, I don't think it's a common thing. And that's where John kind of like deals with this. Yes, it does happen. But that's not normal. What I want to talk about, John is saying, is you. And that is, we know That anyone born of God, verse 18, does not continue to sin. And the one who is born of God keeps him safe. In other words, the one born of God is going to change. Why? How do I know that? Three reasons. Number one, something has been broken. It's called Satan's control over you. When you become a believer, you have a new master. It's not clean. It's not always smooth. But there's a reality. The day you became a Christian, Satan's power is broken in you. You still have sin in the members of your body. Romans chapter seven. But the fact is, sin's power has been broken in you. Satan's control has been broken in you. Satan's mastery has been broken in you. God's Power and authority has been established in you. Something is protected in your life. Verse 18, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe. There is an authority and a protection over you. It goes also, I believe, over your children. There is a number of passages I could give you. We don't have time right now. There is a protection, a sanctification that comes over your home. There is a protection that the Spirit of God brings. Spirit of God goes with you. When you leave here today, the Spirit of God goes home with you. He protects you. He is shielding you. He is intervening for you. He is praying for you. All of those things are true of your life. And lastly, something has been enlightened in your mind. Verse 20. We know also that the life that the son of God has come and has given us understanding. There is an ever increasing revelation and understanding that comes to you. I I see this all the time. I see this with with brothers and sisters. As they continue to grow, they see things, they get a maturity about them, they grow, they gain a perspective, they see things that matter, they gain a perspective about life, about relationships, they gain appetites that are more godly, they Things that used to attract them no longer do. Movies that are kind of bad for you that used to be just really tempting are kind of like, "Eh, I don't really even like them anymore. Those things happen. Why? John says, because God is in you. Satan's control has been broken in you. And the spirit of God is protecting you. And the spirit of Christ is enlightening you. John's summary is this. Live with confidence. Not because of you. But because of God. Life is secure. Because of the work of Christ. Your prayers are heard because of the kindness of God. And your life is going to change because of the indwelling power of Christ. There's a confidence and a security that you can live with. Not, my friends, because of you, it's because of God. The world's going to get nuts out there, more likely than not. It's going to get worse. Yeah, it's okay. But what's going to be true of here is you're going to be more rooted, more secure, and the Father is going to hear you. And because of that, you're going to be more steadfast, immovable, abounding in the Lord, and nothing is going to shake you. Nothing. No matter how crazy the waves get, they're just going to be broken over your steadfast spirit. That's what John wants you to know.